Okay. Can you hear me now? All right. Hey, everybody. This is Everything Under the Sun here on KDNK. And just to double check our technical stuff, Tucker Ferris, are you on the line? Ooh, not hearing you come through. Um, so Tucker, we hear you through the computer, but not through the fader. Yeah, I think, okay, everybody technical difficulties, we're going to play a promo and we're going to regroup, okay? Just take your tack and listen to you. Just lay right here for a second here. It's a free world, let me get lost up in it. Just take your time, count your blessings. Just lay right here for a second. It's a free world, let me get lost up in it. All of the love that you got inside is making a world all this while. All the light that you left behind is way up somewhere in the clouds, coming back around. Higher than you ever been, ever seen. Real talk is the love you put in everything. Let it breathe, let it all feel With somebody, I wanna feel the heat with somebody. Ooh, baby, baby, no one asked for that. Don't quit your day job. Well, let's hear you give it a whirl, Zen Fatal. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Not bad, but I know what we should do. Go to Katie and K's local legends lip sync battle on February 24th at El Dorado in Carbondale. You can register to lip sync with a group or just shine solo, sunshine. Win great prizes and local legend status and all in the name of supporting Katie and Kay. This event is open to the public and will end with a dance party DJ set by Katie and Kay's The Walrus. Should we tell them the best part? Yours truly, Zen Fatal. And Thelma Thunder Thighs from the Roaring Divas are your fabulous MCs for the evening. All the juicy details and registration can be found at katieandkay.org. See you legends there. All right, sorry about that, folks. We are back. Tucker Ferris, can you hear us now? I can indeed. Are you there? Um, yes, I can hear you. I'm going to turn that up a little bit. And um, welcome. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to all of our listeners. This is Raleigh Burley, and a big thanks to Megan Passmore for helping us get everything on. And um, big thanks to you, Tucker Ferris. So for folks who have maybe not seen the paper yet, uh, Tucker Ferris grew up here in the Roaring Fork Valley. He's a fifth-generation local. 
uh, and currently a professor of sociology joining us from France right now. Um, and he wrote a column this week about the ongoing war in Ukraine, two years in. Uh, Tucker, welcome. Thank you, Raleigh. It's, it's good to talk with you again. It's always nice to be back in the booth there, Katie and Kay. And funnily enough, it's midnight where I am, so it seems no matter where in the world I am, I'm always in the booth at midnight. Uh, that's true, yeah, because you'll spend tunes here at Katie and Kay as well, um, but typically late at night. Yeah, a ghost in the halls. So to begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing in France currently? Of course, yeah. Well, I'm um, part of a artist residency at a chateau in northeast France here, and I'm a writer-in-residence that's part of this program and part of my work here. In addition to the occasional dispatch to the Sober Sun, is I'm writing text about... Um, different elements of uh, philosophy and sociology and sort of things that examine the human nature of existence and questions of being and beliefs. And I just finished a piece on dreams, and it's really been kind of a, a wild bohemian experience so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have Gus Richardson joining us as well here he is one of our youth reporters with the Sopra Sun uh, how are you doing Gus a little out of breath but I'm all right how are you <laughs> doing well yeah thanks for joining us I saw you uh, walking out a fast clip to get here <laughs> yeah I uh, just got a little held up no problem at all and so we do have Tucker Ferris joining us from France um, and uh, let's jump into the content of the article uh, you wrote to us two years ago, and um, you thought really as as the you know the news of Russia's invasion of Ukraine was breaking, you started to see kind of echoes of the Cold War, um, and you wanted us to look beyond the good and evil kind of binary perspective on what was unfolding. Um, and so you you titled the column Shades of Nuance, and we recently published a two-year follow-up to that, um, and I, I couldn't help but notice the tone being a little bit different. So I was really curious to, to ask you about that specifically, um, how you as sort of a, a scholar uh, in the area of um, Russian history are viewing these events unfold over two years? Well, I mean, the very good question is sort of to the point of the change in tone first. And I think um, in submitting that and, and seeing uh, your response of the change in tone and thinking about that sort of critically in terms of my writing, I think in one sense, yes, there is a bit more of an inflammatory tone here, whereas there was caution at the beginning, uh, for sure. But I think it's because the, the topical focus of the pieces has sort of shifted over time in this sort of triplicate of articles, uh, or columns, rather. We have the, the first one that is in the very early days, there's sort of a midpoint checkup that's dispatched from Eastern Europe specifically. And then there's this one that's in Western Europe. And so there's there's geopolitical perspectives, but there's also different thematic focuses. And so the first one really came out of this notion of seeing 
an immediate sort of emotional knee-jerk reaction on the on the part of the local but uh, but American populace as well of sort of instantly creating this Russian monolith of every Russian is evil, every Russian is against Ukraine, and it's that came from uh, seeing a a fairly well-known historian in Canada speak about um, this conflict as a Ukrainian saying something to the effect of every single Russian has blood on their hands and we need to wipe them out. And it's a very intense reaction that is emotional at the time, but it was really parallel reflected to that that post-9-11 hysteria that swept through where all of a sudden patriotism was very, very in vogue and it became a sort of breeding ground for things like xenophobia and when that happens we tend to lose the historical and sociocultural context and at the time of the first piece too I was in regular communication that was very I shouldn't say regular, irregular communication uh, with one of my sources in Russia who is not in any way involved with the military, she's a kindergarten teacher and a linguist and so the reality that hit immediately was the entire world hates me. My bank card doesn't work. My phone doesn't work. My email doesn't work because all of these sanctions are sort of happening overnight. And so that first piece was sort of a call to remember the humanity of the other because in any sort of sense of geopolitical conflict, there are civilians that are non-combatants on either side. And the, the capacity to frame them as complicit gets to be kind of a murky place, uh, ethically speaking. And then moving through middle piece writing from uh, Vilnius, Lithuania, so 35 miles from Putin's nuclear bombs were in Belarus at the time, um, in a country that was historically occupied by the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, pre-imperial Russian tribes. is a history of being the place where Russians and uh, sort of ethnic Slavs are, are always in con- <clears throat> excuse me always in conflict with uh, the Balts there to try and get access to the Baltic Sea, and being there, it's it's not the sense of uh, patriotism. It's a sense of this is our generation's turn because there's the history there that is it's carved into the very stone of the city. There's the Russian, the Russian imperial influence, the Soviet influence, the post-Soviet influence, and with this collaboration between Alexander Lukashenko and Belarus and uh, Vladimir Putin and, and all of these sort of geopolitical things happening, especially with the Baltic states being part of NATO, it was a very different thing. And so the theme of that one wasn't so much the demonizing of Russians that we saw at home, it was the commodification of aid for Ukraine, because I sort of saw parallels in when there are Ukrainian flags hanging off of the presidential parliament in Vilnius, where within a day there would be there could be an invasion at the doorstep. It feels like the solidarity there and also taking in direct refugees, providing direct military aid, etc. That feels much more real there. And then now being on the complete opposite end of Europe two years later, in a historical region with respect to uh, particularly the Second World War, but the First World War as well, these this sort of classic battle between Western 
freedom and democracy and liberty without debating the efficacy of those with the concept of fascism. And so there's that con that sort of um, contrast there, but also the um, the difference in perspective towards the Ukrainian conflict in Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, it's a conflict that's been prepared for and fought over generations for thousands of years. And Putin very long-windedly discussed this in his recent interview with another journalist named Tucker. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the the difference is, is here it's seen as a more of a symbolic battle of keeping at bay uh, a fascist movement or a authoritarian movement or something that is still generations removed, but still fresh in the memory of the place here. And even in the small village I'm in, there's a, a memorial to the sons of the town of 50 people that were lost in World War One. Like, these are generational wounds that haven't left the soil. And so the tone of this one being a little harsher is this also going reflect the fact that we collectively seem to have moved on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the blue and yellow has faded in the sun a little bit, and we've moved on to other things, and it's not entirely our fault. But the point of it is, is that is still a critical struggle that has transcended simply a, a preservation of Ukrainian sovereignty, but it pulls into question the geopolitical stability of the European Union, of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, this, this whole um, interactional state in Europe is sort of threatened in terms of the security of that, and, and the challenge with that for us is it may be very removed from our valley, but the entire world economy and all of these things that facilitate life in the valley are interconnected now. And if this, we we can't have a uh, an isolationist perspective anymore because we're no longer this isolated continent away from all of it. And so the importance of it is really that it needs to not be forgotten and not be moved on from, especially when it's it's still ongoing and especially when there's a massive amount of both you know, military and civilian casualties that are uh, an almost daily occurrence. So, so that's my very long-winded answer. Yeah, and in this latest column, you talk about the apathy of the American public. Um, what's the experience there in France? Are you finding similarly apathy growing among Europeans, or is it much more um, existential there? Well, it, it really sort of depends on where in Europe you are, and that's kind of the challenge, too, to consider it as Americans, is it is each place is radically different, not just in politics, but in history, culture, language, etc. Um, but in France, I'm seeing there is there's a recognition of the gravity of the situation, and then there's federal support to Ukraine that is sort of publicly supported and also the same in Germany uh, and the UK to an extent. But these places recognize the need to continue providing aid and doing so without sort of using it as a a political bargaining tool uh, as, as Americans have. And I think that's sort of reflective of the apathy here a little bit. It's very much still an active part. And when the driving distance is much shorter and there's no ocean between you, these things are always present. Mm-hmm. 
And so even in this very small village, there's still fighter jet drills every other day here over the sky from the military base that's nearby. And it's, you, you're not privy to whether this is Ukrainian pilots training with new F-16s or other military hardware, or if this is French fighter squadron drills just in case, or other NATO allies. So it, it is very much a part of daily experience here. Not in a way that people are openly talking about it every day, but the fact that it is, it's almost become an ingrained part of reality. Hmm. On the end of your uh, comment there, you spoke a little bit on how maybe being in Europe changes a little bit and how Ukraine and Russia being your kind of next door neighbors might affect things differently. Could you build some more on that? Yeah, it's um, it really, and I don't want to sound like Vladimir Putin in his recent interview, but it does come back to the sort of cultural history of it, um, and particularly the fall of the Soviet Union, which is not that long ago. Um, Lithuania, as an independent nation, as the independent nation that it is now, is the same age, roughly, as Raleigh and I, um, which is thankfully not that old. Happy late birthday, by the way. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the thing with that is that this is a, a freedom and a republic that was fought tooth and nail, particularly in Lithuania and Ukraine, the first two states to secede from the Soviet Union. And so there, the the oppression and the brutality and the economic and social challenges of living in the, the Soviet Union are not history. Um, that's lived experience. Um, you know, this this is not two generations removed, one generation removed, this is the current generation. And, you know, you have soldiers who are on con or conscription now or doing their compulsory military service whose parents were fighting just, you know, 30 years ago uh, for independence from, or independence from the Soviet Union. So it's much fresher in the collective social memory and the traumas are still there. Things, these oppressive things, were still happening up until the very end. Um, one of the sort of more famous ones is in Lithuania. The these partisans fighting for independence of their country occupied the national television and radio broadcasting room for I think 19 hours or something, broadcast messages of freedom and resistance until they were accosted by the military. And it's that. That's someone who would be in their mid-50s now who's not, which is not that old. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what makes it different. It's not just the distance, but it's it's close in terms of geography, but it's close in terms of memory. Well, for folks and, just yeah. tuning in, this is Tucker Ferris, um, wrote a column uh, for this week's edition. And uh, you mentioned the Tucker Carlson interview um, and we just in a brief email exchange touched on it and you said that you were playing absurdity bingo with some Russian friends during watching that and uh, you know I think a lot of people mm, obviously don't understand Russian history and could easily just believe every word that's spoken in that interview uh, could you point out some of the the mistruths or absurdity that you yeah. witnessed well, 
in a very masterful sense, Putin went all the way back to like 800 BC, and I'm, we don't have time <laughs> to go all the way from there. But the most common myth, and this actually circulated quite a lot um, on X or formerly Twitter, um, as a, a common form of Russian propaganda that is presented by these um, these content farms that are sort of disguised to look as American commentators on the on on the site, but they are actually run by typically machine learning and AI, but also just lots of people uh, within the Russian Federation. And that myth is that Vladimir Lenin created the idea of Ukraine. Um, the This myth stems from an article that Lenin wrote in Pravda, which is the Soviet news, newspaper uh, in 1920 after the revolution, uh, that basically sort of grants this idea, quote-unquote, independence the Ukrainian Republic. The reason for this at the time is because this land where Ukraine is, uh, access to the Black Sea, very fertile places, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, had lots of different ethnic groups living there that were sort of all vying for some form of independence. They had Slavs who were not Russian, um, but close and closer to Russians, and these were what we would now call Ukrainians. Uh, but Cossacks were also a major ethnic group there, as well as some other uh, southwestern Asian indigenous nomadic people. And when the First World War concluded, when the Bolshevik Revolution concluded, um, that was originally part of Russia, the state of Russia. And they continually were leading re counter-revolutions and revolts and coups. And finally, they said, no, you could be your own state. And that is the myth. And it's, it's a very dangerous myth because part of it is true. There was the creation of this state. And without getting into too complicated thing, basically the way the Soviet Union worked was very similar to the way the U.S. works. There's a central federal government that's headquartered in Moscow, but every republic is basically its own independent state with its own parliament, its own leader, etc., um, with a different political ideology. But... This idea of Ukraine being created by Lenin has become this rationalization for contemporary Russians to say it's not legitimately its own country. It was created arbitrarily, and it's not its own culture. It's not its own people. It's part of Russia. And so the most dangerous thing with this interview from Putin is he makes a very convincing case by long, rambling, historical like I'm doing now, but very detailed, <laughs> long, things to basically. Oh, I think you muted yourself. Mm, no, we're not getting any sound through. Oh, dear. So what do you think about that, Gus? Well, yeah, um... That's that's pretty gross on the part of Putin. I don't know how how opinionated I can get here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very interesting, um, Tucker. We could. I don't know if you can hear us. I can hear you just. Oh, talking, okay. yeah. oh now we can hear you. Got too. sound back. <laughs> Huzzah! I think it's interesting oh, what you yeah, say yeah. about like how somebody yeah. can create a really elaborative narrative, and what you were talking about with like machine learning AI and just how vulnerable we are 
to fall victim to what looks like a lot of facts, a lot of evidence, a lot of historic backing up of a point that's being made. Um, it's a very interesting time we live in that, you know, people could be convinced of all kinds of things using those methods. Certainly. And the most challenging part with this is in the United States particularly, but in the West, in 1990, when Reagan says, tear down this wall, we have been making media and all kinds of things where the Russians are the bad guys, and we see the Cold War as something we want. So we don't need to think about that ever again. In the Eastern Bloc, this is studied much more openly as being a transitional period, where in the U.S., in terms of academia and history and the what we teach even in, in high school, uh, this doesn't matter anymore because we accomplished our goal, we got rid of communism. That's not the issue because there's still 20-something new countries that formed overnight. And the way I've explained this to my students is if imagine over the period of eight months, uh, the U.S. was suddenly... 50 new countries with hard borders, militaries, entirely independent governments, passports. That's what happened in 1991 to 1992. Mm -hmm. So it's an entire, the largest country in the history of the world having to rebuild into all these independent republics. And we just, we simply don't teach that in our education system. There's sort of a collective understanding that we don't really need to. There's other, maybe some more subversive points on, on why that might be, um, but it, it really is just a drop-off of, of history there, mm -hmm. and we then become susceptible to it because we've never heard we've never heard another perspective, and it sounds very impressive. If you go back to the first ever consecrated bishop of Moscow in 850 BC, well, or whatever, not uh, not consecrated bishop, but uh, uh, emperor or tribal leader or whatever. Like that's going to sound very impressive, and it's also going to bore people really quickly uh, to just sort of agree with you. And you're Vladimir Putin; it's best not to disagree with you publicly. Well, I do want to point out we only have about four minutes left, um, so I'll turn it over if Gus has any questions, and if you have any concluding comments, Tucker. Um, I guess a question I have is, uh, I decidedly do not doubt your um, knowledge of the subject, but I'm curious if you have any theory as to if there's always been this backing and there's always been this big possibility for conflict between all of these countries that came out of the same place, why is the Russia-Ukraine war happening now and not 10, 20 years ago? In your opinion, that is a that's a great question, and that actually is one of the positive things to come out of Putin's interview because we finally have a conclusive answer for how he considers this. At least, arguably, there's been Russian conflict in Ukraine since all of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, it's it hasn't been a full scale military invasion, but sort of incursions and terrorist acts and sort of rebel groups and things. But in 2014, there's a, a coup in Ukraine. It's just sort of a violent change, or I think, I think it was called the either the Velvet Revolution or the Orange Revolution. There, there are so many. Um, the, the 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 entire government is replaced um, with a pro-Russian government, and then these pro-Russian groups in regions that are sort of more ethnically Russian start rebelling. This is also when we saw um, 
a Malaysian Airlines commercial jet shot down by surface to air missiles, and so Russia then used that as justification to annex Crimea. Putin said in his interview last week that, in his mind, the war started in 2014. And so the invasion in February of 2022 was not a new conflict. It was an escalation to end a conflict that had been ongoing. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to think about. It's important to think of intentionality behind the two. But the the thing with the, the challenge with it, too, is we don't see all of the conflict in the West. We see the big parts of it. So... My, my parting thought on that is for folks who want to maintain uh, awareness to, to seek out information and to do so as broadly as you can uh, in local sources. Google Translate is your friend and pretty accurate. So, Well, and I appreciate yeah. the name of the column being Shades of Nuance because these things are complicated. They're not black and white. And uh, I appreciate you bringing your expertise to the Soper Sun and helping inform us more. Appreciate it. I appreciate you too. Oh, yeah. Nice to meet you, Gus, as well. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. I've heard stories. <laughs> <laughs> good ones. Yeah, they're good. I've not made <laughs> dangerous bars yet, Raleigh. I've not <laughs> so I've been got, shot at yet. You got Tucker a press credential so he could go undercover, and uh, Gus's <laughs> is in the mail on the way. Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing to have, Gus. You can get followed by the FSB. I've done it in Clive, but terrifying. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this interview. My name is Raleigh Burley, joined by Gus Richardson. And I love to be here. And uh, our guest was Tucker Ferris, not to be confused with Tucker Carlson. Please. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned for Regional Roundup coming up next. Mm-hmm.